Hi, and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our desire is to see people all around the world burn for one name, Jesus. We pray that you experience the love and power of Him through this journey. Thank you for joining us, and may burning witnesses arise. Open up your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Amos. I know some of you are thinking, man, he must really know his Bible if he's going to preach from Amos. Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, we're, we're going to look into the book of Amos, chapter number nine. I do feel like the Lord has put some very specific things in my heart. Uh, I'm going to just hop right into it, head first into the deep end, if that's okay with everybody. Uh, I tend to get a little excited. Um, so if you're taking notes and you're tracking along, I hope they're recording and all of that type of stuff because it may be a little bit of a bumpy ride uh, as we go. But Amos chapter 9, in the consideration of being selfless, you understand as well as I do, Revelation 12:11 would say it this way, that they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Right? And we shout, we dance. We sing, we praise, right? It's amazing. That verse is epic. It is awesome. But if that's the only part of it we know, it is incomplete. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, not loving their own lives, even when confronted with death. Man, I'm believing that there's a people in this hour of history that are going to arise, they're going to emerge. They're going to erupt in the earth, a remnant as it's been spoken about, a, a tribe, a family, a church, a bride, a, a bright, radiant, illuminated people, fully possessed with the Holy Ghost, head over heels in love with Jesus, that have counted all of the cost and evaluated all of the consequences, but cannot live another day bound by self-preservation. A people bound by self-preservation will never be the catalyst for revival in our nation. Never. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, not loving their own lives. Man, is there anybody in the house that has tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I've been all around the world and I've tried every different thing and I've bumped in to all kinds of different folks, but there's nobody like Jesus. And I've been so satisfied deep down on the inside by the taste that I've had. Man, it may have only been a little bit, but it was enough to secure my devotion for the rest of my days. With the glimpse that I've been given, I may feel like I've seen only a little bit, but that little bit that I've been privy to has brought me to the place where I'm willing to give him everything for the way that he has come to me and revealed himself to me. Oh, that a people would emerge that would lose the love of themselves in the love of Jesus. Uh, and I would submit that it is impossible to not love yourself until you have been loved by him. Because as we let him love us, he loves us away from the love of ourselves. It's one of the beautiful roles and works, you could call it a job that the Holy Ghost is jealous for to pull you more away from you and to bring you to the feet of this beloved bridegroom king. Oh, that I would 
would be able to give more of myself to him. Uh, and I believe that that's what the Lord is going to invite us to do tonight. Uh, I, I love, man, man, first off, let me say, wherever they went, this was insane. Right? Like, whatever was going on up here, like, I don't know where y'all went, but like, this was insane. Um, really, just a sweet, tender nearness of the Lord. Um, and that tells me a lot about you in private, uh, because you just can't work up a magic recipe in public. Um, you, you'll never be able to behold him in public if you're not beholding him in private. Um, but as, as we look into Amos chapter 9, I believe that there's going to be a simple invitation tonight. How can I make more room for him? How can I give more of myself to him? Man, like I may feel like I've given him everything, but that's the beauty of it, is then he comes to you again. And he draws close again. And he reveals himself again. And you realize that, that there's more to give, that there's more yes to bring, that there's more space that he can occupy in our hearts, in our lives. And I love, even throughout worship and even different things that were shared, because at one point, and even Javin uh, alluded to it and, and point, pointed it out and emphasized it when he came up, um, the verses that we are going to look at in Amos chapter 9 tonight are going to talk about the reconstruction of the tent of David. The tabernacle of David. And in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, this is Amos releasing the word of the Lord. Right, right? This is not just some spiritual kook. It's not some space cadet. Right? It's not some fluff, some flake. This is Amos gripped by the word of the Lord, even as we know in Hebrews 1, in times past, God spoke in and through the prophets to our forefathers. That the prophets were a housing for the voice of God. That in a moment, the wind would blow and they would be gripped with a great jealousy and a fervency, a fire that would come upon them, even like Jeremiah said, if I wanted to deny him, I could not. I, I, I couldn't. Even if I wanted to turn, if I wanted to rebel, if I wanted to flee, there's nowhere that I could go because he's done something to me. He's touched me. He's come to me. And the word that he's put on the inside of me, he says, man, it's like it's burning on the inside. He says, it's like fire shut up in my bones. And Amos is releasing the word of the Lord. And in chapter 9, 11 and 12, this is what he says. In that day... I will raise up the fallen tent of David, and I will restore its breaches, and I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Amos is prophesying of a day where God would pour out his spirit upon a people. He's prophesying of a day when the tent of David, where the tabernacle of David, and we'll get to that in just a moment because that is crucial to the picture that we are painting here tonight. 
Amos prophesies of a day when God would pour out his spirit upon a people and there would be a people throughout the nations that would establish the tent of David. They would honor Jesus as king and they would live in light of the reality that he is not only going to be king on that great day at the consummation of the age. He is not only going to be enthroned in the moment where he said himself, the son of man will come again in Matthew 16. He said, riding upon the clouds, when all glory and authority of his father with a host of heavenly angels. He's not only going to be the exalted one in the moment that Paul speaks of in Thessalonians 4. He says where the sky will split, the lightning will flash, we know the trumpet will sound, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear, and he will come. Amos is prophesying of a day when there will be a people scattered throughout the nations of the world that will establish the tent of David. And they will establish the tent of David and they will make it primary, they will make it central. They will find their life and their bearings for life in God and one another and mission for the Lord out of the establishment or the reconstruction of the tent of David. There will be a tabernacle of David that will be reconstructed in the last days and there will be a people that will learn to behold him, to become like him, and to see his image formed in them and his purposes fulfilled through them. And the outworking of the reconstruction of the tabernacle of David is what? Look in verse 12. It is the harvesting of the Gentile world. It is the harvesting of the nations of the earth. Amos is prophesying of a day where there will be a people that will worship God and minister to him as a way of life, not just individually, not just isolated, not just broken, fragmented little corners all by ourselves, but as a collective body, as a family in unity, contending in the tent for God's purposes in the nations. And he says, when I get a people like this, the outcome, the byproduct of a people that learn to behold the Lord and to make worship and ministering to him as a lifestyle, as a family body in the earth, when I get this, it is going to produce a harvest throughout the nations of the world. And listen to what Amos says. And all the nations who are called by my name, well, that's interesting, because up until that point, there was one nation that was called by his name. But Isaiah 49, we have the conversation with the Father and the Son, right? At least you, you must read it this way prophetically, because this is the insight that we're given. It's almost like the, the pulling back of the curtain, and we're able to glean into a conversation of the Father and the Son, and the Father says to the Son, it would be too small of a thing for me to only send you, Isaiah 49, 6, to only send you to regather the 12 tribes of Israel, right? We understand Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob wrestles. Out of Jacob comes Israel, and out of Israel comes these 12 tribes, a nation called in covenant to the Lord. I will be your God, and I will marry you to myself. Up until that point, there was one nation. 
But Amos is prophesying of a season in the last days, a season that even Joel prophesied about. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. He's prophesying of a day where not only one nation would be gathered to the Lord, but it would be too small of a thing for me to send you to only regather the 12 tribes of Israel, but I will make you a bright light even unto the Gentiles and the rest of the world. I want you to know that God is thinking big things. I want you to know that God has big plans, he has a big purpose, and right now it may seem like mission impossible that he is going to gather for himself a people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, that there will be a bride without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, that in the day that Revelation 19, 7 prophesies, whenever the marriage supper of the Lamb is ready and the invitation goes out, that the bride will have made herself ready. And it may seem like Mission Impossible right now because of all the hostility, all the division, all of the pain, all the suffering. I'm not even talking about in the unbelieving world. I'm talking about in the church. (laughs) Uh, I'm talking about all the egos, all the logos. (laughs) Man, that we would have a day where people would care more about the bride than their brand. (laughs) Oh, that's not good. But Amos is prophesying of a day when the tent of David would be reconstructed and that God would have a people that he could possess in the nations and that this people who become his possession, right, right, this is the heavenly vision. This is what Daniel sees in his vision in chapter 7. He sees a people that the Son of Man possesses by his own desire. They're exalted. They ascend to rule alongside of him as he is reigning in creation when he returns. This is what John sees in Revelation 5, 9 and 7, 9. A people from every tribe, nation and tongue beautifully beholding the Lamb and worshiping the worthy one. And Amos is prophesying that this day is coming. Let let me just tell you, there is no devil in hell that can stop this day. There is no plan of the enemy that can derail this day. There is nothing that the adversaries, rebels are able to do in order to disrupt God's plans. We understand that as we continue to lean in towards the end of the age, that there will be two things that happen simultaneously. And we're seeing them. There will be the increase or the escalation of darkness. Because the enemy will recognize that his time for eternal judgment is soon drawing near. And as he is running out of time, he will do everything that he can do to unleash a fury until time comes to an end. Because when time comes to an end, there will be no more time. I know that was super deep. So we're going to see the escalation of darkness. We're going to see demonic activity and an agenda from hell unleashed. But he can't stop what God is doing. And simultaneously, we're going to see the increase of glory in the earth. Simultaneously, we're going to see the knowledge of God cover the earth as the waters over the sea. Simultaneously, we're going to see a people that become illuminated. They're bright. They're radiant. They're radiant ones because they've looked into the face of the radiant one. 
and there will be signs, wonders, miracles. There will be an accompaniment, not as a validation, but they will follow those that believe. And we will see an eruption of God's purposes in the last days, unparalleled to any generation that there has been up until this time period. And I believe that we are a whole lot closer than some of us probably think we are. And Amos is prophesying of the day where David's tent is going to be central. You see, we learn of David's tent in 1 Chronicles. In 1 Chronicles 13, 14, 15, 16, 15 especially is the verse that we'll highlight. In 1 Chronicles 15, we learn that David has a desire to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. In fact, in chapter 14, he says something that is staggering, or at least it should be. Because at this point, they have understood that they've been without the ark for almost 70 years. For those that remember, they had been conquered at one point by the Philistines. The Philistines had made a mockery. They had taken the ark. But almost 70 years had passed. The majority of that time, the ark had been at Abinadab's house. We're creating a foundation. And David says something that is staggering. He says, we have to do something about this. For in the days of Saul, we never went looking for the ark. And when you come to chapter 15, it said that, yes, David built houses for himself. But in verse 2 of 1 Chronicles 15, it says, but David prepared a place for the ark. David created an intentional space because of how holy the ark was. David prepared, and I know that when we consider language like that, it may seem very simple, it may sound incredibly casual, it may not seem like a big deal. Oh, who cares, he created a space. It's not like somebody gives you an ugly plant and you gotta find somewhere to put it in the house. I, I, I got to create a space for this. Like I got to find some like empty space on the wall to hang that thing that they gave me because I don't want to offend them like they gave it to me. I got to find a room where it fits. No, this is not the idea at all. David brought the ark to Jerusalem for the very first time. And they had attempted to do it one time. And it didn't go the way that they had planned on. We know the story, I'm sure we're familiar. They called military leaders. They had their own desires. In their own ambitious way, they attempted to bring the ark and to carry it the way that they wanted to rather than the way that God had prescribed to. And because they chose to carry it their own way, it says that when they began to teeter and totter, and it, the, the ark began to stagger, and it actually began to look like it was going to fall over. It says Uzzah reached out and touched it with his hand. And we know, because we're familiar with the story, that they died that day. And David is, he's angry with the Lord. He's angry with the Lord because he doesn't understand. But David does something that is very profound. It says that he begins to recount the word of the Lord in order to understand God's desires for how he wanted the ark to be carried. You see, we don't get to carry presents the way that we want to. <laughs> you see, David learned really fast 
that I don't get to carry presence in a casual way. I don't get to carry presence in a carnal way. I don't get to carry presence as a way where I don't treat it as holy, where I don't understand his desires, where I haven't recounted the words that he's brought to me or to us as a people in order to understand his heart in matters pertaining to his presence. David learned really fast. I just don't get to do this the way that I want to. But God has revealed a way that he desires for this to happen. And it says that David made room. He prepared a place. When you continue to look into what making room and preparing a place actually looked like, he constructed a tent. <laughs> I'm not talking about like one of these little camping tents. All right, like a little four person, a little six man. Uh, no, 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 we're talking about a monstrosity of an idea. And in this tent, there were thousands of musicians, singers, worshipers, exhorters, thousands. We're not talking about like a banging worship leader and a cool preacher taking their show on the road. Thousands that would minister to him day and night. Thousands that would give their attention to him in a holy way because of the way that he was wholly worthy of their attention. David made room in Jerusalem where worship would not just be a one-time-a-week event, but it would be a way of life. It would be a way of life. He made it central. He made it the main thing. God was the main attraction and he put him on center stage. He said, you are our agenda. You are our order of service. You are the thing that we're after. You are what it is that we burn for. You are the thing that we desire. And we know this, David just wasn't putting on a show for people. But we have his heart that he pens throughout the Psalms. Different moments, Psalm 27, four, this one thing. Man, this one thing. Man, if you give me one thing, it's this thing. And David made the main thing the main thing. And it was the only thing that was going to define and direct his life. He said, this one thing I ask, and this is what I'm gonna seek. Man, David had a bunch of other responsibilities. He was king of a nation. He was leading the army that was considered the most powerful in the, re in the region at the time. But David did not eclipse things that God had designed. <laughs> he did not become distracted with things that God had designed for him. He understood that he bore real responsibility, but he also understood that there was one thing that his life was primarily going to be about. Psalm 62, my soul waits in silence for God alone and for he is my salvation. Psalm 63, 8, my soul doth cling to thee, O God. We have beautiful expressions of David's heart. David wasn't putting on a show but something had happened to him and he said, I'm going to make room for it. He said, God, you don't have to look anywhere else. You're going to have a people here that will give their attention to you. Amen. You're going to have a people here that will minister to you. 
You're going to have a people here that will treat you as holy. You will have a people here that will make a place for your presence. You will have a people here that will host you the way that you want to be hosted. We will minister to you the way that you deserve to be ministered to. Lord, if you're going to look anywhere, look no further. Don't look me over. Don't pass me by. We urge you. We plead with you. We're going to tug on you. Come this way if you're going to come anywhere. David made ministering to the Lord central. This is the idea of the tent of David. This is the idea of the tent of David. But, but let me just ask you, do you even have room in your life for the ark? <laughs> do you have room in your life? Because when they tried to carry it their own way, they understood the severe consequences. Because let me just tell you, when God really comes, like when he really comes, Things aren't always necessarily as nice and as neat as we would like them to be. Man, really getting a hold of the presence of God in our lives can at times disrupt a whole bunch of other stuff that we're trying to have go on. Because when he comes, he does his thing. He doesn't do your thing. He does his own thing. When Jesus started talking about going to Jerusalem, which is what he was doing, it was what he was doing. He was talking about laying his life down. He was talking about being betrayed. He was talking about actually being brutally murdered and actually dying. And Peter pulls him aside and he's like, whoa, 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 bro, hold, hold up. No, man, like this is not a part of the plan. Like, bro, I've left everything to follow you. Like, bro, we've been tracking with you. Like, man, I left an income. You know what I mean? Bro, like I walked away from family. Dude, I've been getting criticized for a couple of years. Like, bro, this is like, what do you mean? You're disrupting all the plans. Like, we've got a good thing going on right now. Like, what are you talking about derailing all of where my investment has been? <laughs> um, but Jesus doesn't give in to that. He continues to reveal himself. Um, and at times, the way that he reveals himself becomes incredibly problematic to some of the dreams that we've created, to some of the ambitions that we have, to some of the plans that we've formed to try to do things our way, where he piggybacks all of our desires, where he just blesses and sprinkles a little bit of himself on things that we want. Uh, let, let me just encourage you. You just can't slap a Jesus bumper sticker on anything that you want and command him to bless it. I know that that may be the way that it seems, but, but I'm, I'm so sick and tired of this like patty cake, patty cake, Jesus man stuff. This like, man, like walk up, put in your two quarters, push the buttons that you want, and you know, like I dream of genie, uh, you know, rub his belly and three wishes are gonna come out. This isn't the way that it works. But David brought the ark to Jerusalem, and he said, Lord, we're, we're gonna host you. We're gonna host you as a people. We're gonna host you and we're gonna give you our attention. Do you have room in your attention for the ark? <laughs> Is there any space? Right, sometimes we feel like we're not hearing from him but it's because we have no room for him. There's no room for him. We're so busy, we're so distracted. You don't understand, man, like, like my way of life and like my rhythm and hey, if you're too busy for him, let me just tell you, you're too busy. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's George Whitfield that goes down as saying, I have so much to do today that I must get up so much earlier to be with him. <laughs> the idea is not the more that I have to do, he's what suffers the consequence. Well, because I have more to do, I have less time to be able to devote to him. You see, Abram is another man in Genesis 18 who recognizes he's sitting at the front of his tent. The Bible says that God came to him. Abram saw three visitors. But when he realized that God had drawn near, it says he got up and he ran to meet him. And he bowed down low. And he said, please don't pass me by. That's Genesis 18, 1, 2, and 3. He said, please don't pass me by. But he said, let me grab some water so that I can wash your feet. He said, let me do whatever I can to try to bring you rest. He said, let me go and, and grab some bread for you or make a meal for you. You see, Abram understood that when God came close, there was only one thing that he was worried about doing. And it was making room to host him, to give his attention to him, and to be hospitable to him. Abram wanted to be hospitable to the Lord. When God came close, he said, how can I minister to you? How can I love on you? How can I wash your feet and give you rest? How can I bring you bread? How can I make you a meal? He said, don't pass me by. And God lingered. He stayed. Similar to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. When you read it, it almost sounds super funny. Like Jesus has like a weird sense of humor. In Luke 24, 28, 29, 30, it says that as they were coming towards a place in the road, Jesus acted like he was going to continue on to see what they would do. <laughs> because sometimes he wants to know if you're willing to let him go. Sometimes he, he just wants to see that if he acts like he's gonna go, how we're gonna respond. It says he acted like he was going to continue on, but they urged him. Another verse says they tugged on him. Another translation says they pleaded with him and they said, come home with us. Come home with us. Like right now, I'm not cool only going so far. I'm not okay with just temporary emotional highs. It's not all right for me to just get one touch and to try to live off it for the rest of my life. Like, man, I'm not interested in only walking a couple of steps forward and then letting you go do your own thing and me trying to find out what I'm supposed to do now that you're no longer here, that you're no longer close. They said, we will not let you go. Come home with us. And it says that he went home with them. And he lingered with Abram. And out of lingering with Abram, look at what actually happens into the life of a man that wants to be hospitable to the Lord. God says, where's Sarah? He says, oh, yeah, she's cooking. Like, like, man, like we're trying to get something ready for you. And he says, a year from now, you're going to have a child. No, 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 no. Hold on. Like, don't, don't. Like, man, don't do that. Like, 
like, like hold on, like, like man, like you, you don't understand our, our situation. Like man, you've been, you've been troubling me with this for a long time. Like, and man, like we, we haven't been able to make it happen. And like man, like don't, hold on, don't do that. And he says a year from now, you're gonna have a child. And we find out of a man who was willing to host God in his life, to be hospitable to the person and the presence of the Lord. You understand the presence of the Lord is a person. It's not a product. <laughs> He's a person. And out of hosting the person and the presence of the Lord, we find the birthing of God's desires from barrenness and brokenness. We don't find Abram asking for this, but we find the unveiling of God's desires. He's unloading into the life of Abram because of Abram's posture. All I care about is ministering to you. I've lost every other desire. I've lost every other glistening light, all of the other attractions and persuasions, all the lesser lovers. You can have it all. Take the world, but give me Jesus. I will be one if no one else. And Abram's posture is to host him and to be hospitable to him and to tend to his needs and to just want to love him and to love him well. And we find the birthing of God's desires out of brokenness and barrenness. Man, but that's not all. Like next we find that God says there's actually a call on Abram's life and he's gonna be a man who out of his house will touch all the houses or the families of the earth. And he says, how are we going to fulfill the call that is on Abram's life? And in Genesis 18, 18, and 19, we find, he says, Abram, go home first. Go home first. We prayed for strong families. He says, go home first and lead your family in the knowledge of God and in the ways of righteousness and justice. And as you... Let me touch your house. You will have a house that touches the nations of the world. This is what Jesus says in John 2 when he comes in flipping tables and whipping folks. He says, you've made this house a house of business, a den of thieves, a den for money changers. He says, but my father's house is supposed to be known as a house of prayer for all nations. It's the prophecy out of Isaiah 56, house, prayer, nations. It's important to establish the house and then the house begins to embody prayer and to pray for the harvesting of the nations. And he says, we are going to fulfill the call on Abram's life because Abram was one man that was called out of a mess. It's actually funny, Mesopotamia. which is modern-day Iraq, where the Tower of Babel was. Babel is still in Iraq, which is where Babylon was. But one man in Genesis 12 called out of the mess, and he says, if you will walk with me, I will bless you, and out of you I will bring forth a people, and I will use that people to bless all the nations of the earth. Abram, go home first, because I'm longing to establish a house. Go home first because I'm a family man. If you don't know it or not, God's a family man. He's father, son, and spirit. We are baptized into the experience of a new way of family so that we now can be an expression of a new way of family in the earth. 
where earthly, worldly family is no longer our reference point, but it is what we've been given access to, to behold in this divine community. God in himself is a divine family. He is community in himself. And now he is the reference point for what we are longing to establish in the earth as a house, as a family, as a people, as a church, as a bride. Fight to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He says, Abram, go home first because as I establish your house, I'm going to make a house that will touch all the nations of the world. But it doesn't even stop there. Next we find that God is now revealing to Abram what's on his heart for cities and regions and nations and people groups. He says, should we share with him the things that we are getting ready to do? And he brings him in and Abram gets instructions for intercession by hosting the Lord well. <laughs> let, let, let's just, let's track from the beginning really quick. From hosting the Lord from giving himself to being hospitable to God, from having a one thing jealousy, there is a central thing that drives his life and his bearings for life and mission in the earth. And it is to host the person and the presence of God. And out of that, it was even sang and prayed, delight yourself in the Lord and I will give you the desires of your heart. Because as you make me everything, I will gladly give you the desires that I have put in you because I have become your desire and now you have become a housing for my desires and so I have no problem giving you my desires because I've become your desire. It's not worldly. It's not carnal. It's not ambitious. But when you make him everything, he's willing to give you everything because he's become everything to you. And he knows that you are satisfied with nothing because you have everything in him. But out of one man who's willing to be hospitable to the Lord, we find birthing out of brokenness and barrenness of God's desires. We find a branding a call upon Abram's life that's going to radically revolutionize his own house. Right, right, right. Like we're not just praying for God to do things in the nations. I want him to do something in my living room. You know what I mean? It's, it's like the Gideon thing in Judges 6. Hey, listen, yep, I'm going to use you out in the field. Yep, it's going to be amazing. Yep, we're going to deliver a people group. Yep, we're going to rout the enemy. But um, hey, Gideon, go home first and tear down the altars in your house. Destroy the Asherah poles in your room. Get rid of the idols underneath your roof. Crush the generational bondage and the things that have plagued your family line. Go home first. Because to think that God would desire to do something in public and bypass what's happening in private is absurd. I'm not only going to move in the field, but I want to move in your living room. I want to move in the bedroom with your kids. Man, I want to turn your kitchen upside down. 
Man, like when we get the wind blowing and the fire of God on our house, I'm telling you, they were all gathered together in an upper room and all of a sudden God shook the whole house where it is that they were and he put fire on everybody. Man, may God roast all of you tonight when you get to the house. Man, I think sometimes we limit it to something only happening right here, but man, when you get the fire in your house, when you get the wind blowing in your house, when you establish the altar and the ark in your house, when you determine that I'm going to shut everything else away and I'm going to give him my attention, I'm going to behold him and host him. We find a call that revolutionizes his house. And out of a house that has been transformed, we find mission into the nations. And then we find instructions for intercession. Abram wasn't just bombarding heaven with whatever was on his heart. I mean, that's cool. But he had been given access to what was on God's heart. And he found his instructions for intercession through the access to God's heart that he had been given. God said, should we let him in? Should we reveal to him the things that we're longing to do in cities and regions and nations? Man, that God would have a trustworthy people where he could really share what he's doing in our nation. (laughs) Where he could really share what he's doing in our nation. And we wouldn't have this abundance, right? This plethora of spiritual sounding voices uh, that sounds like God is a schizophrenic or that he has, like, that he's bipolar or something, depending on what voice you subscribe to or what channel you turn on or what platform you look to, depending on where you look and where you go. But Paul describes these days. In the last days, men will be lovers of themselves and they will look for ear tickling. And they will find those who are simply saying the things that they long to hear. Um, You understand as well as I do. We're living in a day where no matter how crazy of a something it is that you are trying to listen to, there's all kinds of folks for you. It doesn't matter to me how wild, how completely out in left field somewhere, no matter what, you want to try to justify, no matter what you're looking to validate, no matter what type of lifestyle or ideology or what have you, there is somebody preaching it somewhere. (laughs) But Abram found instructions for intercession out of God's presence. Because God had a person that was willing to host him. But Amos preaches that in The last days, it's not just going to be a person, but it'll be a people. It's not just going to be a person, but it'll be a people that learn to host him together. That learn to create a place in Ephesians 2 habitation. For we're no longer strangers or foreigners or aliens. But because of the wisdom of the cross and the power of the blood, the cross has created a new community in the earth and the expression of one new man, no longer identified by ethnicity and all of the nationalities and all of the worldly chaos and hostile conversations that create all these polarizing categories and inflict suffering on people groups in order to divide us. No longer will that be the reality for the blood of Jesus has torn down the wall of hostility and the eternal enmity has been destroyed. And now through the broken 
bloodied body of God. He has made for himself the way to have this people that he desires. Jesus thinks his bride is to die for. <laughs> this beautiful people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. This is what we see, and, and we'll bring things towards a close. This is what we see embodied in Acts 13. In Acts 13, verses 1 to 4, starting in verse 1, it says, In Antioch there was a church. That's important. <laughs> There's a church. We have to understand that, that the scriptures are communicating um, that there's a church there, um, but we hear first church in Matthew 16, and it doesn't come from the word of a man. It doesn't come out of the desire of a man, but it comes out of the mouth of Jesus, and it comes in response to Peter's revelation. He says, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You know, they go through, hey, well, bro, word on the street is like, you know, you're, you're Jeremiah, you know, like some other folks are trying to say, like, bro, you're Elijah. You know, like, bro, like, man, there's a buzzing all around town. You know what I mean? People are trying to figure out who you are. Like, some think you're John the Baptist, and you, like, come back from the dead and stuff. And, like, bro, we don't know what is going on. And he says, but thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood could not have possibly revealed that to you. But my Father who is in heaven by the power of the Spirit has shown you who I am. And upon this rock... I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is committing to building his church because it's his church. The church doesn't belong to a denomination. The church doesn't belong to a man. The church doesn't belong to a government structure. The church doesn't belong to a 501c3. The church doesn't belong to a political candidate. The church doesn't belong to the president. The church doesn't belong to a governor. The church doesn't belong to any worldly king, but it belongs to the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the lamb that was slain, the only worthy one above the earth, in the earth, under the earth. He is the head of the church. And it is his church. And when he builds it his way, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in Antioch, there was a church. <laughs> Again, not some articulate speaker and a great graphic guy. <laughs> you only laugh because you know what I'm talking about is super funny because it's super true. Like, man, I got a call to preach and I got a graphic guy. We're a church now. <laughs> Let's just keep going. All right. <laughs> In Antioch, there was a church. And there, there were prophets and teachers. And it begins to name five guys, right? Simeon, Lucius, Manaean, Barnabas, Paul. And it says that they were all together, fasting and praying and worshiping and ministering to the Lord. The verbiage there is that it was not a one-time event, but the language and the tense being used is that it was an ongoing way of life. They weren't ministering to the Lord because they were in the middle of a crisis. They weren't ministering to the Lord because they needed financial breakthrough. 
They weren't ministering to the Lord because of their own worldly desires or because of things that they wanted God to do because God was not being who he thought or who they thought he would be, Uh, right? Like they weren't going to be able to press him with their devotion in order to get him to be something that he already is not. But they're there and they're ministering to the Lord. And out of ministering to the Lord, it says that the Holy Ghost speaks and says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have for them to do. And in verse three, it says, and after they finished fasting and praying and ministering to the Lord, you mean they actually continued on after God spoke? (laughs) Hey, hey, I just want to tell you, sometimes the hardest thing in the world to do is to linger a little longer when you feel like you already got what you came for. If you've only come in to get a word and you haven't really come to get him, if you've only gone into prayer because you need some new nugget of revelation because you've got you know, somebody you want to impress or a Bible study you got to teach or some meeting that you're heading to, right? if you're only going in because you're trying to see something in a vision, the minute you feel like you've apprehended what it is that you were after, you'll check out. I got what I came for. But they continued because it was about him. But we understand that when you chase the king, you get everything. When you seek first the king and the kingdom, all these other things, I'll gladly give them to you. If you make the main thing the main thing, you get everything. (laughs) Right? But you can spend your whole life spinning your wheels trying to get everything else and end up losing everything in the end. Or at least that's what Jesus says after his invitation to the gospel in Matthew 16. For if any man gains the whole world, you know it well, and forfeits his soul, where's the profit in that? But if there's anybody who's actually willing to lose their life for my sake in the gospel, if you're willing to sow your whole life into the field because you realize you've gained the pearl of great price, If you're not willing, like the rich young ruler, to forego and to surrender your real estate in this life in order to occupy territory in the life and the age to come, I found everything I've ever been looking for. It says when they finished fasting and praying and ministering to the Lord, they laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas. And verse 4 says, and then they went, the Holy Spirit going with them. It's important to understand that Antioch is the first church in the region that's been planted because of persecution that has happened in Jerusalem. Up until the moment where we hear of Antioch, there was a centralization, if you will, to the work of the gospel after the Spirit had been poured out on the day of Pentecost. Um, It's actually one of the tragedies as you track through. Maybe you don't see, see it this way up until this point, but it's one of the tragedies that we realize is that it actually took persecution to come upon them in Jerusalem in order for them to fulfill the commandment that Jesus gave to them before he ascended. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and even unto the ends of the earth. But sometimes we can get so satisfied in a centralized way with what it is that God is doing in our midst that it very easily becomes us four and no more. And because it's so good in here, as long as you don't disrupt what I got going on in here, like, oh man, like it is off the chain in here. 
It's actually a tragedy that it took persecution to hit the church in Jerusalem in order for them to be scattered throughout the region in order to fulfill the desire that Jesus revealed to them before he ascended. But now we hear that there's an eruption of the gospel in Antioch and there's a church there. And in that church, there's prophets and teachers. We'll move quickly through these things. You're not gonna find any more wild of a polar opposite setup in a person than a prophet and a teacher. <laughs> You're just not gonna find it. But what is it communicating to us? Is that not even our natural makeup or the way that we identify as the way that God uses us or the gift set that we carry or the preference that we have is reason enough to separate us from being a family, from being a people, from learning how to be molded together to create a habitation like Ephesians 2 where our lives are knit together now creating an abiding place for the person in the presence of God. It's not all right for you to have your stream. All streams have come together in Jesus. It's not all right for you to have your crew, your clique, your preference, your crowd. All crowds have come together. In Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, but then it names five names. And when you get into all of these names, they're all of different backgrounds and ethnicities. You find a Roman, you find a Jew, you find an Ethiopian, you find a Greek. There are five guys that are named because again, the wall of hostility has been torn down and the tribe, the nations, a people from every tongue throughout the earth have come together to be family in Jesus, to represent him in hosting him for his work throughout the nations. And there in Antioch, there's a people that learn how to minister to the Lord. But out of learning how to minister to the Lord, they get sent to minister to others. You cannot get close to him without becoming crushed with his heart for others. They learned that out of ministry to God, he branded them, he assigned them, he sent them, he set them apart, set apart for me. I realize I have a people, I have a place that have created room for me. They've reconstructed the tent and they are jealous to host me. Here I'm going to speak. And out of ministering to the Lord, they get divine instructions on how to minister to others. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, there's things that I have for them to do. And there's a corporate amen. There's a people that bear witness. It says they all rallied around and they laid their hands on them. There was no jealousy. There was no competition. There was the understanding that God is doing something in our midst and it's holy and it involves all of us. And so we send them and we celebrate them and we are with them. And there was the going and the coming and the coming and the going. And there was intercession when they went and celebration when they came back. And this is what we find in the council in Acts 15 where they are perplexed because of the way that the gospel has broken beyond the boundaries of their preference. Man, what is wrong with us? Like God is doing something in the midst of people that I don't want him to or I never thought he would. And they come together and Paul and Barnabas are there and Peter stands up to share on how the gospel came to Cornelius' house. And Paul and Barnabas get up to share on how the gospel had broken out in Antioch and in several other places that they had found themselves. Seleucia and on and on throughout the region as they were tracking obediently to the Holy Ghost. And James in Acts 15, 16, 
he gets up and it says after a couple of moments, he says, hold on guys, how can we be angry with what's happening? How can we be confused? He says, for God has spoken of a day where he would reconstruct the tent of David. He has prophesied some time ago where his desires would be fulfilled by the rebuilding, the reconstructing, the establishing once again of the tent of David in the midst of a people. And that the byproduct of that would be the harvesting of the nations of the earth. He says, guys, we're not seeing what's happening through the lens that God desires for us to. He says, we can't work against this or attempt to stop this. This is the very thing that God has desired all along. We cannot disrupt what the tent was always meant to create. We can't seek to stifle the work or the byproduct, the outflow of what the tent and its establishment in the earth throughout the nations is actually longing to see fulfilled. He says, guys, we have to see this rightly in order to respond to it correctly. And he quotes Amos 9, 11 and 12 as a way to validate God completely wrecking the nations as a way to legitimize the spirit being poured out, not just upon a people in a central way, again, a family that will behold him and learn to host him and make ministering to him everything, but that as we do that, that there will be an eruption of the work of the gospel of the power of the testimony of Jesus that will flood the nations and it will actually be one of the catalysts for the end time harvest that we see beginning to be fulfilled throughout the nations of the world. James says it's important that we go back to things that God has said so that we can understand what God is doing. And he says don't stop them. They've made room. But oh, that there would be many more people, meaning collective, that there would be many more that would begin to rise. That there would be many more that would make room, that would reconstruct the tent, that would put down all the distractions, hey, I'm telling you, man, if this is a moment and a season for anything, offload all the distractions. I'm telling you, all the worldly stuff, all the line straddling, all, all the games, all the one day in, one day out, the ups and downs, the roller coaster stuff, like trying to straddle, like how close I can get to the world and still maintain like something with Jesus. I'm telling you, like these are days and a season to wash your robes and to secure oil. Because God is looking for a people that will make room. David prepared a place for the ark. Give us a heart like David. How much room do you have for the ark? How much room do you have for the ark? I don't even want you to hear this in some condemning way. 
I want you to hear this in a jealous way because his heart burns to be with you. <laughs> um, you, you see, the prize of constructing the tent is him. He is the prize. He is the pearl of great price that's worth selling the whole field whenever you find it. How much room do you have? What type of room are you willing to create? How strong can you sense the tug on your heart to be with him? I promise you, if you do this for any other reason than for him, it's not going to last. You can't do it for me. You can't do it because somebody tried to guilt you. You can't do it because of all the shaming and the, that stuff doesn't work. It's not strong enough of a motivator to last. It doesn't stick. But when he draws close and when he touches your heart and when he shares with you his jealousy for you, when he shares with you his, his longing His longing, the groan. You see, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says that while we reside in this earthly tent, there's a groan. <laughs> there's a groan because we realize there's so much more. Man, I, I, I pray that the groaning of God would hit you again. I pray that that painful ache on the inside, you just don't understand. I've got to have him. I don't care how weird it looks. It doesn't matter to me how strange it sounds. It doesn't matter to me how abnormal it may seem. I don't care what normalized cultural Christianity is satisfied with. It doesn't matter to me what everybody else is doing or how everybody feels it's okay to live. I don't really care about that stuff. He's come to me. He's touched me. He's revealed himself to me. And I know that as much as I may think that I want more of him, he wants more of me. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website, burningones.org, or download our app.